Ah, hi, and welcome to the Birds and Beasts podcast. I'm your host, Sue Johnson, white, cisgendered, um, neurotypical, able-bodied person. And this show is all about breaking the bullshit heteronormative binaries. And my very, very special guest is Yves Navant. He's an author. He's an illustrator. He's incredibly handsome. <laughs> and <laughs> he doesn't think so. Um, <laughs> and he's coming today from the Mile High City in lovely Colorado. Woo! Uh, thank you for having coming on the show. I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you very, um, very much for having me. I'm very, very happy to be here. Uh, I found you on Instagram because you had done an amazing illustration of Love Connie. And I was like, oh my God, it's Gem and the Holograms meets Heavy Metal. And I am in love with this. <laughs> Two of my favorite things. Well, three, if you count Connie. Um, I met She's Connie <laughs> um, after seeing her, this is uh, her appear in Alaska 3000s. Um, this is my hair video. Uh, and and we started conversing back and forth and we share so many, she, our friendship was just immediate and we built a pretty intense bond. Uh, we have so many muses and inspirations in common. Uh, and she's the queen of all bombshells from uh, Marilyn Monroe to the Mary Jane girls to Michelle Pfeiffer through to Dorothy Stratton. Uh, she just has an amazing repertoire of inspirations that, and I share many of them. And so when I was working on 13, I wanted to find someone to write a foreword and she was one of the very first people I thought of and she was gracious enough to do so. Amazing. Mary Jane girls. I haven't heard that in so long and it's perfect. It's that nasty, but like, I'm still very intrigued. It's like <laughs> Not the flip like... side of uh, whereas Prince was like massively uh, mainstream success and he mm. talked a lot about faith versus sexuality and gender. Um, Rick James was the much more heterosexual, like could not have been more cis male um, representation. Uh, he was the other side of the coin of Prince's kind of very feminine and very comfortable with his femininity and like lit it on fire his gender prince did to entertain and to evoke and provoke and rick james was really much more of a straight r&b guy mm. but prince's protege bands were vanity six and apollonia six and rick james's analogs to them were the mary jane girls and so they're okay. they're super cool women the 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 I'm acquaintances with uh, one of them who I met through Connie actually, and she is just the cool. sweetest. Oh my God, that's amazing. She's pretty um, awesome. She is. Your, your style, um, I, I can't go on enough about how much I love She-Hulk. I mean, Thanks. Jennifer the lawyer. <laughs> I would want to be She-Hulk. Just, I just love the way, and it's just this really tiny detail but just the way you have the, the muscle in her upper thigh, I just fucking love that. I cannot stop staring at it. So as a kid, uh, female characters and female heroes and sometimes villains, but female heroes were always, whenever we played superheroes as little kids, I always <laughs> wanted to be Crystal from the Inhumans or the, uh, the Julia Carpenter, because these are the characters from my childhood, Marvel's Julia Carpenter Spider-Woman with the black and white suit and the red yes. hair. 
And yes. yeah, She-Hulk, what, any of the X-Men women, Storm Rogue, um, Ileana Rasputin, Psylocke, when she was still originally British in the suit of armor. I just always- Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> I always gravitated towards the female characters. And so drawing them or getting to filter that, that intellectual property through my lens is just super exciting to me. I still feel like a little nine-year-old when I get to do it. And um, your, uh, the Neuromancers, your, your book. Yep. Uh, sorry. Because <laughs> I keep wanting to say Neuromantic. Uh, yes, <laughs> actually. Neuromancer was the William Gibson. He's the guy that he, like. I, fuck. Sorry. <laughs> cyberpunk. And my, the, so the title, the 13 is the titular character. Um, yes. To give a brief, can I just give a brief synopsis? Absolutely, so, because people uh, should go out and buy it. Your work is amazing. I mean, and do. Yeah. I like to think it's pretty okay. Um, <laughs> but um, let me read, I want to revisit in a second the Gem and the Holograms yeah. versus Heavy Metal, because that's funny, you should say. But um, <laughs> so 13 is the titular character, and it's a story all about, it's set in a near future where mm. humanity has utterly commodified itself and the privileged wealthy citizens use the underclasses the poor and the lower middle class for spare parts and if mm. someone is very very beautiful then a privileged person can say oh let me surgically remove your lips and graft them onto me you have really beautiful crystalline eyes let me remove them and put them in in my sockets if you have an aptitude for athletics or whatever, the perception of the wealthy is that they can cut off your arms, graft mm. them to themselves, and they will absorb your talents or your abilities. Um, if, if you sing really well, they'll remove your throat and all of a sudden it will be this other individual, wealthy individual, privileged individual with someone else's throat grafted onto themselves. And so in this future society, the wealthy who clearly visibly have had surgical augmentation are seen as uh, uh, covetous and they're the mm. enviable ones. And the poor people with like prosthetics or obvious missing parts mm. are like the, the undesirables. And so yeah. I, took, I took today's classism and today's wild gross consumerism yes and kind <laughs> yeah. of that's that was my interpretation of it and so the the poor people the underclasses of which i consider myself to be um growing mm. up from a poor european transplant american family and wanting to be an artist when all the other kids wanted to play sports or just get jobs and be moms and dads mm. um the the story is kind of autobiographical in that I hope I'm making sense. And so uh, <laughs> uh, the the titular character to help his family, he is the 13th child, as I am as well. Um, so there's the, a little bit of your life mixed into it yep. as well. <laughs> uh, he's the 13th child and he's the last one that showed an aptitude for, he's creative and a talented artist. And so he find he donates, they call them donors, the people who remove body parts but in mm. real life, they're selling them. Uh, he, mm. he sells his arms and the wealthy individual who purchases them uh, does so um, for a nefarious purpose. And so the story is all about him trying to get them back and trying to make himself what he considers to be whole again. It's so brilliant and dark and really gorgeous at the same time. Thank you. Um, yeah. 
And please, anybody that's listening, I, I will put all the links where you can get everything. But yeah, it's really just smacks you in the face. <laughs> please, I and will. I, I will sign it. Um, I will. We can convene somewhere. I'll sign it. I'll dedicate it. I'll do a sketch for you. Really, I just think the the work really <laughs> deserves to be seen. Um, did it bother you at all? Because I know sometimes, like. Uh, Lately, I've really been listening to a lot of Philip Glass. I know those shows not about me, but and um, he really hates it when people call him minimalist. Do you? Does it bother you when people say this is post-apocalyptic? This is speculative fiction. No, no, is I it think, okay with the labels? Yeah, I think so. I think um, each individual comes from their own life experience and their own whatever they've allowed to influence them or affect them aesthetically or personally, they kind of, mm -hmm. that's the vocabulary they pick up. And so the, everyone is simply trying to describe it and communicate their perception of it. And mm -hmm. so I, I don't think it, I don't think it's bothersome at all. I think any individual who wants to describe it to someone else, they're merely, merely choosing the language that is readily on call for them to, mm -hmm. to describe what they've read or seen. Yeah. I get that. And and I think art too is very subjective in a way. Yes. What, yeah. You know, some things just emo evoke emotion in you. It's non-representational. Like, so that, that feeling, it's like, I need to put a word to this. Yep. <laughs> um, so going back to Gem and the Holograms, is, is that something that you are obsessed with as Massive, massive, massive influence. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to derail so badly on this. I'm already, I'm all okay. butterfly, so I'll get excited and derail a million different ways. Oh, same way. <laughs> Birds of a feather. So uh, exactly. as, a, as a kid, after college, um, I'm going to jump forward in time and then backward. And then backwards? Uh, all right, that, I'm yes. there for it. Uh, <laughs> uh, after college, I had played in a couple bands, and shortly after I graduated college, the bands that I was in signed an independent record deal and recorded an album. But the thing that made me want to get into music initially as a wee lad was the Gem and the Holograms cartoon and the and the toys, the, the dolls. Um, my mom was pretty forward thinking and open-minded and encouraged me to play with GI Joes and Transformers, mm. but also Gem and the Holograms. And I, some of my fondest memories were of going to the big chain toy stores and pacing mm -hmm. up and down the gem aisle. Like, do I get Stormer, the evil bassist who has a heart of gold? <laughs> or do I get Kimber, the Spitfire keyboardist for the good girls? Um, just uh, the their fashion, they're kind of like- Oh my God, the fashion. Punk rock, like new wave makeup and- uh, Oh my uh, God, glorious. Huge oh. influence on me. I loved Jetta, actually. Yes, Jetta Burns, the British saxophonist. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Just, oh, fuck yeah. If, I know it's very, very coveted, but I always wanted a Synergy doll, and they did not make very many of those. It's and they're not. like, if you go on eBay, it's like $1,000. She yeah, was my, in fifth grade. She was my. We were able to open one Christmas Eve present, one present on Christmas Eve. Oh, um, very European. Yep, and she was my Christmas Eve present on oh. when I was in fifth grade, and it was the greatest for months. You still I had have seen it? her with the oh, yeah. Um, I had seen her with the little metallic streaks in her hair at, at oh. a mall toy store, and every time I, it was like, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be with you someday, synergy. <laughs> But yeah, just a huge influence. And oh my gosh, jumping backward, if I may, to the title of the book, the last full-length graphic novel I did, 13. It's called 13, The Astonishing Lives of the New Romantics. 
but yeah. neuromantics is spelled like neuro as neuro, a, a, yes, a reference to <laughs> neurology and uh, the mind and cognition and etc but not about adamant but I mean, so, I wouldn't say no. I mean, I, mean <laughs> I am wildly influenced by that era of music and the Blitz kids movements in the uh, movement in Britain. And so it was a, a, for me, it was my, a way to like make my own little heart giggle and light up, uh, taking something and tailoring it to sound futuristic and kind of cyberpunky, but also calling back to, I mean, I, I was far too young to participate in it but that movement mm -hmm. of the new romantics where punk had kind of become obsolete because it was nihilistic and everything it burned was... itself out yes exactly Which, yeah i mean i mean it was and a bit there... inevitable and the punk yeah. people in the punk movement knew that Can't, for sure. it wasn't sustainable I, in its truest original form it was not sustainable and mm -hmm. the next trend after that i shouldn't say trends the next movement subculture movement after that what became the new romantics and i it's just such a cool era whereas oh. punk was like all safety pins and torn clothes <laughs> and and um very rabid aggressive rebellion new romanticism was the opposite striking high fashion avant-garde makeup and clothes that could not be beautiful enough and hit like anachronistic i'm i'm wearing a pirate top but i've got <laughs> um czarist trousers and 20th century mid 20th century military boots just american a, indian makeup <laughs> yes just a brilliant 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 movement and so that is the the origin of the term neuromantics that wow, i got for the if you ever have an opportunity to see Adam and the Ants live, I highly recommend it. He is so amazing. And he definitely blurs that line of a feminine presence, but at the same time, he's very like overtly heterosexual yeah. in, in his songs. It, and thankfully, I got to see him do all of Prince Charming. And he did the B-sides because my favorite song is Christian Dior. And he did it. And I thought it was going to wet my pants. <laughs> nice. I do love his material. I just talked to him uh, that I have, I have still many friends in the music industry. And I just talked to the guitarist for a newer band about Adamant and our love for, for his image. And mm. they, yeah, I, it is, he is quite brilliant. He really is. Yes. <laughs> um, and then, and the other thing that too struck me was like, this reminds me of heavy metal. And then I was like, oh. And then when I did some research on you, I was like, oh, he, he illustrated some of heavy metal, <laughs> yep. so, which so, has been going strong for so long. <laughs> and it is the most infamous uh, illustrated magazine. It's it's like a comic, but it's the one that's like, it, it, it's, it's like heavy metal. It's kind yeah. of subversive and it's, sexualized very often and a little more violent and aggressive than the, mm. the mainstream comics. And I think like it has given creators who were a little bit braver or a little bit more intense somewhere to start or somewhere to tell stories that clearly would not have flown at DC or Dark Horse or Marvel. Mm. And so in that, it, it continues to be a pretty relevant and pioneering magazine. And that my first internationally published work was a story that appeared in heavy metal. Um, oh I met Kevin Eastman, the guy who co-created Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, was oh, the yeah. editor at the time. And I, he may still be. I'm sorry if I'm misspeaking, Mr. Eastman, if you ever happen to hear this. But uh, <laughs> he was the editor at the time. And I had done a self-published graphic novel that was kind of 
contemporary film noir, but full color. And I met him in California and I gave him a copy and he was like, oh, this is great. You should do something for us. But I thought, well, it's this brilliant man who is self-made, who created, Mm. he and a friend of his, when they were very young, created what became this cultural phenomenon, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And so I thought he is just being nice to this little dumbass that brought him a cup book. And was like, Sir, I, I, it's really a pleasure to meet you. Here's what I did. And so he took it, said, oh, this is awesome. You should do something for us. So I came back to Colorado and uh, Mr. Eastman put the book that I had done on his top 10 list of graphic novels for that year. And so I thought, well, maybe he's serious. And I did a very short short story, three pages, um, featuring the character with the mechanical arms that that became the titular character for 13 and sent it off to him. And that was my first like globally published work. That's amazing. And I mean, the guy obviously knows what the fuck he's talking about. And he, uh, is, like <laughs> professional wise, he is just the nicest, most approachable, supportive. He just a very supportive, cultivating, encouraging, just a cool guy, just a dream editor or publisher to work with. And as a young artist starting out, that's that's huge. Invaluable. It'll make or break you. The way that your work is interpreted can either be constructive and supportive, or they'll be like, "Man, I don't know." And I, I mean, clearly, there's there will invariably be flaws that a creative will find in their own work, or that someone mm-hmm. in a position of authority will point out to them. And there's a way to deliver it that is cultivating, and it kind of charges the artist up to refine mm-hmm. it, and perfect it, and get stronger and better or a way that just kind of chips away at them. And I'm much more the yeah. cultivation and build them up so that they can be better and stronger. Yeah, and it takes a certain amount of armor, mental armor to put on when you are putting your art out in the world and yep. someone is, has notes on it. Like, yeah, this is good, but here's a way we can improve it. Yep. And it's like, yeah. is, it gonna, is it gonna eat up at your pride? Or are you gonna yeah. take what they say? See, and that's the thing, you can't, you've gotta be proud enough and excited enough to want to show your work off because it's a little piece of you. It's a little part of your spirit that you're giving to the world to say, Hey, I made something for you, 7 billion people on the planet. Um, And if usually you really will benefit from hearing the criticism and from taking it in, unless it's, I don't know. I I don't want to say unless you, even the most venomous, shittiest, pettiest comment, you can usually de-weaponize and say, okay, well, at the very least, sorry you didn't care for it, and but at the best, you can find a grain of truth in whatever it is they're saying, and take it, take their arrow they shot at you to make your armor stronger. Absolutely, and I know that. Um, no, so I was a weird kid, so I took solace in books, and I know you had trouble fitting in, so you took solace in art. Yep. Um, what besides *Gem and the Holograms*? <laughs> were any of the mainstream comics like? totally blew your mind or were you more Absolutely. like I want to find the weird freaky shit like Robert Brown, even or? in fact even through my I was a very wild adolescent um but <laughs> in my childhood I was the shyest like I I, I of course wanted to act in all the school plays because I liked the attention and I liked putting on mm-hmm. another character's persona and performing but it socially I had no friends I was the shyest most awkward I was bullied quite badly for what was perceived to be feminine characteristics and Mm -hmm. whatever. 
but my best friends were comics. Uh, music, comics, and movies were what I lost myself in to be able to rally myself to face another day. And uh, in fact, the mainstream stuff was just, even now I still feel super reverent about some of the mainstream Marvel stuff and a little bit mm. of the mainstream DC stuff, but mostly honestly Marvel stuff from the late eighties and early nineties that yeah. Chris Claremont was writing the X-Men and the way that he wrote women. My heroes have as growing up has, have always <laughs> been female characters. Um, he just wrote women that were intuitive and strong and compassionate, but badasses. And they mm. looked cool because the best artists always got placed on X-Men. And so seeing oh. Alan Davis or Arthur Adams draw Storm and just looking regal, but still tough and refusing to kill, but having the power to control the very elements around us, just stuff like that was so inspiring to me. And of course, the metaphor the X-Men used for being different and a minority and an outcast spoke to my little fourth and fifth grade mind but <laughs> any any strong female character and especially the way marvel wrote because marvel at the time was from I, the inception of the marvel style to my adolescence it was all soap opera e it was superheroics and battles and danger and action but a whole fat heavy lot of, of soap opera drama and i yeah. just loved it <laughs> I, I, um, I grew up, I have two older brothers, and so I grew up with a lot of comics. And, you know, the starter kit for me was uh, Archie and Friends. Aww. But I, I really, really loved um, Venom. I remember when the Venom yeah. storyline first came out, and that was just, like, such a, that just fucking blew my mind. And, and then, of course, um, some of the wackier stuff, like um, Peter Porker. I don't know why. Yeah. We just fucking thought just it was Just a hilarious. cute, weird design. It's just such a yeah. funny... Because Spider-Man, of course, is a powerful character in his own right <clears throat> in terms of the awkward teenage boy who has all this power, but he can never, ever show anyone. So yeah, he, he and, he can't, and he has trouble harnessing it, too. Yeah. He's awkward. And he's, so he, his, his super powerful, like, quippy, funny uh, personality, unbeatable, super strong, web-swinging badass has to stay in the closet and wear a mask. And public facing, he's got to be the bespeckled, nerdy teenage boy. Yeah. So, and, and so that archetype existing and then seeing a little cartoon pig come out wearing the Spider-Man costume, just cute and weird and unusual. Yeah, I, I, and I feel like that just sung to me as like a full, as, oh, it's probably like nine or ten. Yeah, um, yeah and then we're, sorry, I'm having trouble talking today. My marbles are full of now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm actually curious, it's, it's going to be a terrible segue. That's probably why it's tripping over my words, but, um, living in, uh, Colorado, what's the queer scene like there? Um, so, uh, I've either been involved as a participant or, uh, of involved as a kind of spectator on the peripheral. Um, it is a very strong scene. We have a very active, um, like youth services program uh, through mm -hmm. a center downtown in Denver. Um, I previously uh, worked in a, in a position in higher education where I would bring, I and my department, I oversaw the student life department and I would bring in youth LGBTQ questioning kids and have them do activities during the day over the summer or watch lectures or presentations and such um, in hopes of like inspiring them to say, oh, huh, maybe there's a future in creativity or my, mm. my 
passions that I'm judged for elsewhere can be harnessed for my benefit and probably the benefit of the world around me. Um, the queer scene out here, it's, it, there are many, it's multifaceted, I guess is the best way to describe it, where you can find the stereotypical nightclub-y, nightlife-loving demographic, and then the much more civic-minded um, uh, analogs to them. Hmm, interesting. Um, <laughs> are you, I'm going to ask a personal question. <laughs> Please, I'm an open book. <laughs> um, are you, I, I, I just find it interesting that you have these very hyper-masculine characters, and you yourself are, have a certain strong jawline <laughs> and the and the very very muscular legs I, i've seen that picture of you um that you're that steven um i'm sorry i don't remember the line yes yep did of you you were nude but yes. covered your christianity as it were yep. <laughs> but but yeah it, is is that hmm, how do i want to say this uh it where do the two worlds collide? Like, do you, do you, is this always this, like this hyper-masculine something that, that dynamic that you're looking at that you find appealing or is it? Um, so I'm going to give, it's kind of a personal question, but I'm going to give a personal answer back. Um, and I don't mind speaking um, on invulnerable topics or about vulnerable topics, as long as it's genuine. Mm -hmm. And I want to only ever be honest. So as I said, growing up, all the characters I wanted to be and pretended to be were all female characters because they, they were just more appealing and easier to identify with and just more resonant to me. Mm. But at the same time, I knew I was a boy and I didn't mind being a boy. It's just that the female characters dressed cooler and had cooler powers most of the time. <clears throat> and so like in my own work, um, it may appear to be very masculine and aggressive, but the um uh i hesitate to use the term antagonist but the <laughs> the uh, catalyst in the 13 graphic novel is named camille and they are not what they seem and mm. so that's kind of a vehicle for wit that i use to maneuver my own it's how i'm communicating to the audience my understanding of gender and gender expression. And right. 13 is kind of undefined sexually as well, where he right. commodifies himself and kind of, there's a scene with a female character that he kind of makes an agreement with to, he has to get somewhere and the female character can get him there. And so he commodifies himself to become intimate with her, to uh, gain access to what it is she can do for him, but his mm -hmm. heart's with a male character. And so the whole story is kind of like, well, where is this going? And is he gay? Is he straight? Is the villain, what is going on with the villain? And, or mm, I shouldn't have called her a villain, but um, <laughs> I want the audience to read it and make up their own mind. But um, for myself, I don't know, I grew up um, wanting to play with makeup and wanting to have painted nails and wanting to, and it again appealed, that that's why the new romantic and the new wave movement appealed to me. Cause I was like, mm. hell yes, look at Zig Zig Sputnik or early Duran Duran or Boy George and Prince was probably my biggest uh. inspiration. And just that, like they were men, but they yeah. also wanted to beautify themselves and tart themselves up, which I think is amazing. And so I think for me, I cannot not look masculine. 
um, because of my rather Teutonic features and my <laughs> my acrom- acromium process brings all the boys to the yard. And uh, I'm just very angular and square. Uh, and so, and I, I <laughs> most of the time don't mind male char- characteristics for myself or masculine characteristics. Mm. But at the same time, I don't know, I think, I don't want to say anything that alienates or offends anyone who is experiencing their own truth or their own navigation through the minefield and asteroid field that is gender expression. But yeah, for it's, me, it's I, become I, so I, politicized. It so. has. And for me, but I just for want your to personally, yeah. Yeah. For me personally, I don't think I need a uh, female genitalia physically. I think I have it intellectually or psychologically <laughs> or emotionally. And right. so I, I think I can, I like to think I can tap into both of them. Um, sometimes not successfully. Um, and I, I experienced things as a kid. This answer is not going to be intelligible. Um, I've, this is like a short essay that I'm delivering that I haven't proofread. <laughs> uh, as a kid, I experienced some things that kind of obliterated my understanding of gender expression and gender roles. Mm. And so then coming up through adolescence and adulthood, my mind was, my mentality was just like, well, fuck it, just try to be as good a person as you can be and worry about the gender specifics or the, your, all of that later. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if that answered your no, question. It did. No, no, no. It gave me a little bit more insight into, I, I mean, most people have a duality yeah. and how you express it. And I feel like, yes, you, you're actually, your words are very, um, softer with your images being so hard. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I was just curious because you do seem to have that line. I think just biologically and genetically, <laughs> I was designed to be very boxy and angular and square. And I mean, I don't, I don't mind it. It's all right. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, oh my gosh, some of my favorite childhood memories were trying on some of my sister's heeled boots or like going to all ages having to sneak into all ages underground <laughs> punk clubs because the cutoff the start age was 16 that you had to yep. be 16 to get in and yep. i added years to my school id at 14 and 15 to be old enough to get in but i would go with like blue spiky hair or a mohawk or whatever nonsense i was doing at the time mm-hmm. within a lace women's camisole so i i don't know i i will express myself in the way that my spirit tells me to um and and i'm never I would never hesitate to whatever I find beautiful or whatever speaks to my spirit is what I'm going to do. Right. And so I pay less attention to the, well, are you a boy or a girl or are you male or female? Are you straight or gay? Um, I'm whatever I choose to be in that moment. Right. And, and I think that's, that's like one of the reasons why I created this podcast is just like in the cisgender heteronormative world you're one or the other yeah and I life is just so much more complex than that and I feel like people who are not part of who are really on the fringe of society and don't have any place to go yeah it's it's even more important for them to say well that's that does not speak to my life at all and and how bloody boring I mean 2000 human evolution brought us to a point where we can finally just begin a conversation about how obsolete and how passe those strict roles are. And truly, who would want to identify just as one specific rigid thing? 
I ju- like sp- speaking of a very very strict and politicized um, heteronormality. Man, that's gotta be exhausting to have to live your life only showing interest in these things because that's what my gender assigns me to be interested in or whatever the case may be. How bloody goddamn boring. Um, And I think you're making yourself and the world around you unhappy by buying into the idea that you must adhere to these very strict roles. Um, And I think you said that um, those on the fringes are some often don't have a place to fit in, which is a catch 22. That's funny and ironic because it's those people on the fringes, the outcasts, the non, I hate to use this term because I don't think it's normal, but the heteronormative individuals, um, society and culture and the humanities, uh, social and cultural evolution rarely happens because of them. The, The individuals who progress society and culture are the queers and the freaks and the outcasts. It takes countless, I used to say this to a lot of students when I worked in higher education, it takes countless individuals to just live like those herd-like hive mind lives, to just be, live in the roles that they were assigned that they don't question. It takes countless individuals to live that bullshit life where they're like sheep, so that a handful of creatives and outcasts and freaks and brilliant little minds can give them the books they read, the music they listen to, the clothing they wear. Um, and those that is where social and cultural evolution occurs. Yeah, I, I mean, we wouldn't have half the, the beauty and art if we didn't have someone who said, I don't know, this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think about like people like Lee Bowery and um, Alexander McQueen and yeah. Klaus Nomi. And yeah. David Bowie, and, yep. and sadly, they're all gone now. Um, and three out of the four of those people killed themselves. Well, yeah. no, Klaus Nomi sadly died alone. Yep. Um, did you have you ever seen um, the documentary on him? Oh, uh, Nomi, I have not. It's on YouTube. You can watch it for free. At least I hope it still is. <laughs> I, I likely shall. But even look look back to re- the Renaissance age. Um, there were the, the church was, were employing artists to do, to create religious iconography that is now like the David is still on display in a, in an international museum and allowed it for its Mm -hmm. perfection and brilliance. All of that was done by, uh, by queers who were the, the way that they could work and be the most successful was to work for the church. And so the church was, um, procuring them to create religious imagery but it was being made of beautiful men and beautiful women by individuals who did not fit into that system. So, yeah, I I think, and speaking of music and entertainment and comics and books and fiction, that fictional world, um, there were black characters achieving remarkable things long before the common white Mm -hmm. idiots in this country ever allowed them to achieve anything uh, in the real world. And so for those kids reading those magazines with the Black Panther being introduced in the Fantastic Four as an African king of a wildly advanced civilization, a culture yeah. where their technology was better than American technology, whatever the case may be, um, that that became, became acceptable, something a kid reading it could ingest. And so I think that kind of planted the seed for a more open mentality going forward. Absolutely. I, I feel like 
the newer kids coming up, definitely the gender lines have been blurred. Thank God. And right. sexuality is yeah. whatever you, I mean, um, even looking back at, shit, I can never think of his name, Kinsey. He even yes. said that oh, sexuality yeah. is fluid. Yep. And that guy was, had a, he was as square and as white and as dry as they come. Like, I've never, <laughs> I love Liam Neeson. And watching that movie, I was like, I've never seen a sex scene so unsexy before. Yeah, <laughs> mechanical, like <laughs> appliances. Um, yeah. but Kin- that Kinsey is fascinating with the, the scale. Oh, yeah. Well, how not, one being heterosexual and not exhibiting any traits of sexual deviancy uh, and then 10 being like just full-blown four on the floor as out of the norm as you can get I I think that's a kind of still a kind of a valid idea because I think anyone everyone falls in that uh, on that scale somewhere totally um I'd love that I don't know if you know this but I'm definitely I'm a professional nosy person I will say this till I die, <laughs> but um, William F. Bur- uh, William S. Burroughs is actually interviewed by Kinsey, and I was oh, like, huh. I just love that. Me too. That guy was so twisted and yeah, weird, and yeah, Burroughs and, and Ginsburg. He- oh my God! What a weird, strange, amazingly outwardly queer man that guy was, mm-hmm. and um, and he came out at a time where people were like, a famous Jew, what? Yeah, we don't want any of that. <laughs> yeah, I got to do a voiceover uh, uh, forever ago. I got to do a voiceover uh, where I appeared in a video, and then I I spoke the text from Howl, which I think is still oh, wow. amazing. J- I just love that piece. Ginsburg is yeah. Ginsburg is my homie. I just love him. <laughs> he lived a long, good life. He did, <laughs> and that was somebody who died with like no regrets. Yeah, exactly. Which as we all should, we should all be so fortunate. So the podcast is about dating and relationships or, mm. um, did it, am I sort of, yeah, or <laughs> gender. It's, it's and, a... <laughs> I want to talk yeah. about all the things. What, what else can we discuss that is relevant? Um, you know what I, I actually wanted to ask you about was your very intricate and beautiful tattoos. It, you remind me of a like a 1970s cover of The Illustrated Man by Ray Bradbury. <laughs> Do your tattoos come alive at night and tell stories to each other? Um, they definitely have a life of their own. <laughs> uh, as a young man, like 15, 16, uh, I thought that my I was very wild in my adolescence. Um, I come mm. from a very complicated family, uh, French father, German mom. Um, I experienced quite a lot of trauma as a kid and I think that trauma manifested it put a kind of intelligent kid through a whole lot of trauma but make him super creative and kind of this is the end product for for my case and I think that what's whatever semblance of intelligence I had and my creativity and my ambition and I could not fit in. I could not fit in. My peers just refused to allow me to have any kind of a normal life. I was bullied really badly. I mm-hmm. did not um, gravitate towards the same stuff as most kids. Um, I wanted to express myself. And so all of that kind of manifested as rebellion and very wild, very aggressive rebellion. And so at 15, 16, 17, I 
decided, well, let's get tattoos. Cause I thought there's no way I'll live past 24 or 25 anyway. So who cares? And so I just thought, okay, slap them all on. Um, uh, and I was dating a young lady at the time who I thought, of course, with my life expectancy, having a window like this, I thought she would be the perfect um, partner for me and that we'd be together forever. And maybe I'd have a child that I could hopefully make have an easier life or help have an easier life or be a better man than me um whether they're male or female um <laughs> but that was my idea i would i would make as much work create as much art as i could hopefully make some music and then who knows after 24 or 25 i don't know how my life would have ended but that's what that's what i thought and so the the oh, girl I was dating had a friend who was a tattoo artist who she introduced me to um, and she very quickly sleeved me out and I was covered very very quickly and then once I I had some, I did a lot of very wild um, uh, ill-advised I put myself in a lot of danger through no one's fault but my own um, and at the time I didn't realize it, but I was just processing all the trauma and abuse and neglect and all the bad shit that I have been through that I had been through. I processed by putting myself in just extreme danger and extreme moments of hedonism. And um, I had a, what I can describe as a full tilt, complete nervous breakdown where any ego I had was just utterly decimated where I had a moment to sit back and say, look at yourself and look at what you've done to your life. Um, are you going to go forward or are you going to collapse? And I worked really, really hard to pull myself out of it and go forward. And thus how I applied to college and got in. And, but um, my, my tattoos were something at the time that I regretted because they were a representation of that hedonism and extremity. And so uh, this is probably my third layer of tattoos that I have. Um, I had a, wow. Yeah, there's a, a portrait of me that I'm an artist did behind me where I, I have a shaved head. It's a long story, but my <laughs> tattoos are completely, completely different. So I've done some ad, ad editorial work as a, I, I was the model. I hate to use that term. That's so gross and narcissistic, but I was the subject. I was the subject of ad editorial work or some fine art photographers or painters and if you look at that work of me from when I was 22, 23, 24, 25, my tattoos are completely different. And so everything that I have now is probably the third level, the third layer of tattoo over my, what I had previously, because as oh, you grow shit. and change, I couldn't live with the stuff and the, the person that I was then. And so I chose to evolve and go through my own chrysalis, even if it hurt like hell. And I had to go over all the scar tissue and tattoos that I previously had. I would rather look wow. at myself in the mirror and not be ashamed and say, okay, now it's a different version. Same guy, but a better version. And I mean, there's by no means am I at my final stage. Uh, I, every day I want to try to be better and stronger and smarter and more passionate, more compassionate and be a better man. But uh, every day that I get to wake up and breathe and keep making art and stuff is another chance to do so. Yeah. And it sounds like you had tapped into your pain and then, Correct. <laughs> and then you didn't need it anymore because right? you were evolving. Yeah. Yep. Did you, did you design the latest um, 
I did not. Um, nope, I had a mark number three. <laughs> <laughs> right, skin mark three. Um, the tattoo artist that I has done probably ninety nine percent of the work on me uh, went to the same art and design college that I went to, but years before me. And she's oh. the the artist who I met through the young lady that I was dating at the time. Um, and I I retained a friendship with the tattoo artist and. She, she's another fascinating dichotomy of just classically trained artist, but a tattoo artist, but also fascinated with world religion and divinity and spirituality. And she has done everything on me and I trusted her to do all the latest iteration of my skin. That's amazing. How she's badly did, did it hurt on the neck? Because it's so terrible. It's so bad. <laughs> And it's not like, uh, because I'm an idiot and I have done this to myself three times, however many times I've done it. <laughs> so to cover that much work as solidly as I have it, you just have to absolutely like force drill that pigment into the skin. And so it, the ink goes in one way. She has me flex a different direction and then she tattoos it in another direction and another direction. So it is just like hyper saturating the skin with the pigment. And so it's getting the same tattoo in the same spot multiple times to retain as as uh, much pigment as possible. So they are very solid and very densely yeah. done. Ooh, it was some work to get them there. Oh my God. <laughs> I had the tops of my feet done and that was awful. <laughs> See, and I, I find where there's less soft tissue, like the squishy parts aren't gonna hurt as bad, but man, where there's no, no softness, ooh, that's rough. I just realized that you're Adam's apple. Holy uh -huh. shit. And it vibrates. Oh my <laughs> anyway, God. my moral <laughs> is any, any, any younger person who's like, who compliments my tattoos or starts off a conversation by discussing them. I always say, don't get them because who <laughs> you are right now, 17 year old little idiot, isn't going to be who you are when you're 22 and 25. So if you're going to get them, wait until you can really sit back and think, what am I going to want to brand myself with forever? Because whatever oh, yeah. you like right now isn't what you're, who you're going to be in a year or two. Absolutely. I, that's why I waited to my late thirties, early forties to get all my tests. Be smart. Well into adulthood. Exactly. Exactly. I, I also find um, when you went through your nihilistic period, I almost feel like that is a very European thing to do. Like mm. I'm going to live for today because yeah. at 25, I might be dead. Yeah. And and it sounded like you, it, underneath the pain, was there a little bit of a fun that you look back at that? Like? I mean, at the time, I thought it was all magnificent fun. Um, I am not someone who, uh, I mean, clearly, I am not someone who identifies as heterosexual or heteronormative. And all of it was in the, this, every night was this grand dance party hedonistic romantic adventure where if I wasn't falling in love with whoever I went out with whoever my chosen love interest was at the time then I would find a very beautiful boy or a very powerful uh, in intoxicating female to fall in love with and then by the end of the night the movie was over and the story would begin again the next day if I was lucky enough to survive it. So yeah, mm. at the time I told myself it was all a great time, but the problem with that is, is I think I was experiencing all of that for the wrong reasons. And as fun as it was, and as hedonistic as it was, I, I, I 
hate to relate or um, revisit those days because it, again, I think it was all me acting out. It was a very wounded young man acting out, trying to save himself without knowing how to ask anybody else for help. Yeah, I, I think that's common with people who um, go through a, a high level of trauma. Yeah. There's, you, but, that, but you came out on the other side. Thanks. And, so far. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got to live an amazing life. People, I mean, not lucky. I don't know what the word is. Not privileged for sure, but you, you've lived an amazing life so far. And I've got to see things that, yeah. I'm just in awe. <laughs> that's why I'm so appreciative when we were. I mean, honestly, that's that's pretty. That's. I don't know. That's shocking to hear because at the time, when you're living it and when you're going through it, of course mm-hmm. you look at others with a more comfortable life or. I'm using a loaded term, but a safer life. You mm. look at them and it's covetous. You think, God, how lucky they are to just have a. Uh, affectionate, somewhat affectionate, supportive family, or siblings who didn't abuse you, or kids that you mm. went to school with that didn't spit on you, or call you uh, uh, anti-gay slurs walking through the halls. And oh yeah, I got that. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. I, I don't know. It's just it. The grass is always greener on the other side. And I will say, mm. I am very fortunate, and I've done some cool stuff, and met a lot of very cool people. And but damn, it has been a battle. There are times yeah. when I am just more shot full of arrows than I am, but it makes for a great anti-hero. I tell myself. And you are able to, I know I've been able to put my pain into something useful. And yeah. even if it was, the art is only clearly for myself, yeah. just like I was going through some shit. I'm going to make something and then I'm going to burn it. Yeah. I should not draw this back on me because we're talking about you. Um, one other thing I was really curious about is again, um, kind of, having a little Google moment when I found your, because I'm one of those people, I get excited about something and I've got to know everything about it. Again, I'm, I'm there professional as well. Nosiness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you have these lovely photos of you and me with these boys. And it's like a little fetish, a little gross. <laughs> Not gross. I don't know. Grotesque. I mean, that, That's the word I want. That, Grotesque that and in my bio. Yeah. But, pretty, but gross. <laughs> yeah it's a little bit well so I, I'm a little bit kawaii and a little bit dark wave so yeah. <laughs> but yeah are you part of the fetish scene or is it just something an aesthetic that you happen to gravitate towards or? so um th- interesting that you say um I am one <laughs> who wants as long as you're not hurting someone else or as long as you are not subjugating or oppressing anyone else you should get to do whatever you want to do that brings joy or pleasure to your life. Cause life is awful and dangerous and short and we're expected living in a shit capitalist society to do awful things just to live and eat and pay our bills. And so anywhere you can find joy or pleasure, you should get to do those things. Um, and so for myself, I think growing up with such extremity and such hedonism, I gravitated my kink, my fetish was like romantic love. And so like the thing that for me was the most foreign and the most far away from what I had experienced was like actually 
having an emotional investment in one another and like being affectionate and loving to one another. And that Mm -hmm. was my like weird extreme fetish that I couldn't experience or that I couldn't get my head around. So honestly, that is kind of what I, that was my like weird, dirty secret that I kept hidden. (laughs) That was, that was my like secret kink. I don't know what bandana (laughs) code I would wear, what bandana I'd wear to flag that using the hanky code, but like (laughs) romantic love was my secret kink. Um, So the fetish community, I am not involved in it. I know Mm -hmm. I grew up in the punk subculture and the goth subculture. And I know that those kind of go hand in hand a lot with those, with those subcultures. But for me, it was never a thing. But I, I have often appeared. I did an ad for a clothing company uh, and a magazine based in New York, um, an ad campaign um, where I and another younger punkaraka uh, posed with a 57 Chevy. And the images Ooh. looked super fetishy and looked super um, kinky. The, uh, that was the name of the company. But um, <laughs> of their clothing, the clothing side of the company. But I mean, it was... I I like strong imagery and I like powerful content, but it isn't something that I participate in or pursue for Mm -hmm. myself. So like the, the, I think if I'm, if you're not talking about the stuff for the clothing company in the magazine, is it the ones with the respirator where it's me? Yes. Yes. Um, So that specifically, (laughs) I I love the idea of post-humanity and how as, as humans, with tattooing and cosmetic surgery and gender reassignment, hormones, all the things, we're kind of taking the nice project biology gave us and mm-hmm. we're making it our own. Like post-humanity, as I understand it, is the theory that evolution's great, but it's kind of stalled right now. So we're doing it on our own through right. medicine right. And, and augmentation and just science. And so that was kind of, uh, for me, the concept was, post-humanity and the three of us were were three men who needed one another to breathe and rely on each other and I was the centerpiece and they they could exist but they needed me to breathe with them and for them so it was kind of an intimate um sexualized and very very breathy pun intended uh photo (laughs) shoot uh that you don't see any exposed genitalia you don't see any we're not kissing one another we're not our bodies don't come into contact pelvis wise like we're not in positions the most you see is our arms around one another um or my hands on the backs of their heads but it ended up being just a super intimate uh i don't want to say sexual but like sensualness yeah yeah Yeah, it, it reminded me a little bit of a couple of things. It reminded me a little bit of Fury Road, the new man, newer yeah. Mad Max movie. Yep. Um, and a little bit of the cramps. And I'm not yes! sure why. Yep. But it had a Lux interior kind of feel, but you would have been the Ivy in that picture because Lux would have been. Yeah. Yep. And the, you love them? I, love I do. Them so yep. much. So for anyone not who is unfamiliar that's listening, The Cramps was a punk psychobilly band and psychobilly is like rockabilly music, but with that's like kicked up to a crazy theatrical degree, often obsessed with horror films and horror movie and mm-hmm. horror imagery. And the, it was, the band had a rotating 
support cast, but the two main players were Lux Interior, who was a tall, angular skeleton of a pale guy with a, a quaff of what would have been feminine styled hair, who yeah. wore cat suits and high heels on stage. And Poison Ivy was like his badass femme fatale, like switchblade wielding co-conspirator. Great yeah. band. Oh my God. I love them so, so much. I Lux Interior and I actually share the same birthday. Aww, um, awesome. Yeah, but did um, you ever get yeah. Game Live? No, no, I did not. Totally saw them <laughs> live in Boulder. Oh, oh my god! And what we had era to, was to it? see them again. Uh, so the first time I went to see them, I was underage and I was using a ID that did not belong to me. Oh. Sorry, federal authority. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was the goddamn cramps, so I had to try to get in. Um, and but it turned into a riot, and they ended up take being on stage for like two songs, and then having to no, leave. Mm. So then, when I finally turned twenty-one, they were one of the first shows I wanted to see, and so I finally got to see them, and they were everything you wanted them to be, and more. They oh. were just amazing. And the last time they toured, right before Lux Interior's death, I had a chance to go. I was supposed to meet a friend of mine who worked in the in the like the product side of the recording industry mm. um to i was supposed to meet her to get into the show and see them again and i blew it off because i had worked late and i thought well I'll oh. see him. and then he died so I never know. miss a chance to see the band you love because you may not get the chance again absolutely i'm unlucky i got to see the band morphine oh. live because yeah mark sandman unfortunately died on stage in rome which honestly if you were putting your art out in the world, yeah. I wouldn't. That's not such a bad way to go. That's true. There, there are worse ways to go for a creative. That's true. Not, not to be fucking morbid, and we probably shouldn't end on that note. So I'm going to ask you instead about something. Yeah. Else. <laughs> um, now, a lot of the people I've talked to, for me personally, I'm monogamous only because I'm lazy. I cannot multitask. Uh. I cannot put enough of myself into more relationships than the one I have with my husband. I don't like the name. I don't like the term husband. I'm, I've said many, many times on the show, I'm a cranky old feminist. So <laughs> I call him my husband. Um, and I'm just curious because I'm nosy um, about you. I, are you, are you monogamish or do you askew that? Um, so um, I feel like I've done you a disservice because my answers start in my head is very clear cut. <laughs> things and then they become this Dickensian prattling so I apologize um but uh for me specifically if I am single um again to to I'm gonna answer out of honesty and vulnerability because I have nothing to hide but I experienced quite a lot of physical and sexual abuse as a small kid and um because of that I think that manifests as hypersexuality throughout the rest of my life. And right. so if I'm single and I am not invested in anyone, I tend to be very, very hypersexual. And the, the, this is not flattering, but I shall be honest. I have had a lot of partners that were very brief or many partners all at once, but there was no investment in one another. And there was no understanding of this is a committed thing. And so that we're like, we're locked to each other. And so it, it lacking that investment or um, agreement with an individual. Yeah. I've been absolutely utterly wild and all over the place. Um, however, if I am invested in one individual as again, my kink and my fetish is romantic love. 
And I, <laughs> that may sound naive and obsolete and outdated. I don't think honestly, so at all. You know, swans mate for life. So why should humans not? Exactly. Um, but if I am invested in one individual, then it is something, all of that, I would give away all of those partners that were hedonistic. A lot of them were crazy pleasurable and the most perfect bodies and utterly beautiful. But I would give it all up if I could focus on one individual and cultivate understanding and unity and compassion and togetherness. So I guess I can synopsize all of that by saying when and if I am invested in one individual, I do want to put them on a pedestal above all others. And I do mm -hmm. want to let them know things about me nobody else knows or see sides of me nobody else sees or allow them into my life in a much deeper, more intimate, more personal, more just crucial and necessary way yeah. than anyone else. So I think uh, given the opportunity, monogamy is the gear that I want to drive in the most. And it's like my most coveted um, relationship, but mm -hmm. without that, then I do tend to go pretty crazy. I do. I am pretty wild outside of those environments. You can't, I, I feel like you can't be hemmed in by parameters. You were probably, since you were part of the punk scene, you're probably like fuck authority and like at yeah. all times, which I yeah. love that. You should question authority. Absolutely. I agree, especially <laughs> right now for us. In Oy. 21st century Western society, we cannot question authority enough. Yeah. I, mm, I won't get too deep into it. And it's been an hour. Okay. <laughs> um, and I wouldn't rush this just because I have enjoyed so much speaking with you, but I, <laughs> I have another phone call I have to make. Oh, of course. Um, well, if you <laughs> ever need me life. again, let me know. If you ever need me again, please let me know. It has been an absolute pleasure. And anytime I can um, speak to like minds, I'm happy I, to do so. I just love that we were fanning over a lot of the same shit. Just, it's how so the easiest so friendships are formed um, when Absolutely. you're passionate about the same stuff and you can be like the kids excited to show each other your room after school. Absolutely. Oh my God. I just love doing that. <laughs> um, Eve, where can people you find you in your lovely work part? I'll put uh, all your links uh, in the show notes. Well, thank you. My website is Eve Navant, Y-V-E-S-N-A-V-A-N-T.com. And you can see a significant chunk of my work there, but I'm also, I would say easiest to view on Instagram. Uh, and it's just at Eve Navant at Y-V-E-S-N-A-V-A-N-T. Never hesitate to message or comment or uh, I want to know what everyone thinks and what they're experiencing. I'm inspired by all of you guys. So please don't hesitate. Thank you so much. You're amazing. You are, you are an artist in the truest sense of the word. Thank um, you. And, and also, I, before I let you go, you have to explain that. Um, I, I, I just get it. Like, you know how Patti Smith is very much a poet and that she yeah. lives that life. I just feel like that you probably would have hung out with Gauguin in Tahiti just like running around fuck ass naked and making so, art and noise <laughs> and it doesn't snow there so I'd still be down <laughs> oh, you live in one of the snowiest states ever <laughs> I know I, I do too I live in upstate New York <laughs> I have no idea what the hell I was thinking but, Same. <laughs> but it, it has you. been wonderful to talk to you and thank you for having me Thank you for listening, for being part of this. I really enjoy it. And this is kind of experimental DIY, little punk rock. So definitely thank I'm you. Thank it. you so much. Thank you. Course, thank you. Uh, <laughs> if you have any uh, feedback makes this show get better. So please email me at 
birdsandbeastpod at gmail.com. You can follow along on Instagram at birdsandbeastpod and uh, be kind to yourself. I mean that. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Good night. Good night.